chromosome. Y'all can talk about all these viruses, and that's good, but you can't forget the main one. It's plaguing us, bro. It's time now for the People's War Radio Show, where we do talk about the main virus. And that is colonialism. Here on the People's War Radio Show, we talk with healthcare workers, activists, revolutionaries, authors, teachers, and regular people from the African community. We aim to bring you an African internationalist analysis on all things important to winning our freedom from colonialism. The root of all our problems. Hello, welcome to the People's War Radio Show. I'm Dr. Matsumela Odom. And I'm Mwambi Tangu. Uhuru means freedom in Swahili, and freedom is on our minds 24-7. What is being referred to as the 2021 Israel-Palestine conflict is indeed only a recent moment in the Palestinian-Arab struggle to keep their land against the onslaught of European settler colonialism. In early May 2021, Palestinians were protesting the continued illegal annexation of Palestinian-controlled land by Israeli settlement. The Israeli Supreme Court was preparing to expel even more Palestinian families from East Jerusalem. This has been part of an increasingly aggressive and illegal Israeli settlement on Palestinian lands since 1967 but is part of more than 100 years of history. In 1948, 750,000 Palestinians were expelled from their homelands practically overnight. In June 1967, Israel occupied more Palestinian land and expelled another 300,000 Palestinians. Israel occupies between 80 and 90% of historic Palestine. In the contemporary conflict between 2008 and 2021, over 5,739 Palestinians have been killed by Israel. At least 121,438 Palestinians have been injured. One third of these casualties have been Palestinian women and children. Today, we seek to understand the current conflict in the context of the longer struggle for liberation of Palestinian people. Of the 13 million Palestinian people, about two-thirds of them live in exile outside of occupied Palestine. To discuss this with us, we have two Palestinian scholar activists, Bayan Abusenene and Mesam Alomar. Bayan Abusenene is a doctoral candidate in ethnic studies at the University of California, San Diego. Bayan is currently completing her doctoral research project on the intersections between racial and reproductive violence against Palestinian and African people in Israel and Palestine. Van's family is from Hebron, Palestine. Mason is an assistant professor in women and gender studies at the University of Colorado. 
Her research is on the distribution of healthcare as a part of the larger context of colonial violence. Mason received her PhD in ethnic studies from the University of California, San Diego. Mason's family is, tu is from Tukarim in the West Bank of Palestine. She also has some family in Ramallah. Welcome to the show, Bayan and Mason. Uhuru, Bayan and Mason. It is great to have you two on the People's War Radio Show today. What is the origins of the contemporary conflict between the Israeli state and Palestinian people? Bayan, can you go first? Well, hi, everybody. Thank you for having us. Um, so basically, the contemporary story begins in a neighborhood village near Jerusalem called Sheikh Jarrah. Um, Israeli settlers, under the protection of the military occupation, um, are forcing over 200 Palestinians out of their homes in the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood. Um, this is about six Palestinian families who are facing um, what they've been calling eviction. Um, what I would like to use is maybe forced expulsion um, or dispossession um, from their homes. Um, and this is basically a legal battle where Israeli courts have ruled that these Israeli settlers can move into these Palestinian homes. Um, and this isn't new, right? We've seen this back in 2009 where settlers evicted uh, three Palestinian families from their home, again, under the backing of the law. Um, there circulated some sort of video online of between a, fa a Palestinian family. It was the Kurd family, which they also received a lot of attention, um, where the Jewish settler says, if I don't steal this home, then someone else will. And I think this is really important to think about how um, this is just part of like an ongoing structure of what Palestinians have called the ongoing Nakba, uh, which traces back to um, the Nakba in 1948, where um, you know Jewish settlers um, essentially um, displaced or uh, forced Palestinians out of their homes to create this new Jewish state. Right. So what we witness and are currently witnesses are not necessarily clashes or between two equal sides, but rather an Israeli settler state together with Zionist militias, right, with these settlers um, declaring a war on its colonized, um, quote unquote, citizens who need to protect their lives, homes, and their families. Oh, yeah. Thanks for that, Bian. That really adds some necessary depth to it. Mason. Part of how they justify uh, the expulsion of Palestinian citizens in East Jerusalem is by saying that it's a private property dispute and it's about um, land that was purchased in the 1800s and um, that Jewish citizens had purchased from the Ottomans or that they had purchased from the British a little bit later on. Um, but they're the territory where Palestinians are being expelled from their homes is larger than the territory where they supposedly had purchased that land. And also there is no means for Palestinians to reclaim the lands that they had lived in and that they had owned all over uh, what's now the state of Israel and East Jerusalem and the West Bank um, when their homes are taken. So there's only legal recourse that the Israeli state recognizes for Israelis who claim to own land and not Palestinians. Uhuru, Uhuru, I appreciate that analysis. Um, the contemporary struggle in occupied Palestine between the Israeli forces and the Palestinians is being referred to as the 2021 Israel and Palestine crisis. Yet it is much older than that. 
The protesters were protesting the illegal Israeli settlement and the potential expulsion of Palestinian families from East Jerusalem by the Israeli Supreme Court. As you were saying, it's a legal battle. What can you tell us about this case? Yeah, absolutely. Um, after 1967, technically the West Bank and what includes East Jerusalem is technically considered occupied territories where, and it's a legally occupied territory. So Israel is not, it's not necessarily uh, a part of Israel, but it's just um, being occupied illegally. Um, it's technically Palestinian uh, territory. Um, and so there's a lot of significance to the claiming of, you know, to moving the, 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 the U.S. embassy to, um, to, to Jerusalem, right, and sort of claiming uh, Jerusalem as Israel's uh, uh, capital. Um, but like I had mentioned before, this case of um, forcing these Palestinian families um, out of their homes, out of Sheikh Jarrah, right, again, is a classic case of settler colonialism, right, which isn't necessarily exceptional to Israel and Palestine. We've seen this in other places like the United States. Australia, Canada, Britain, et cetera, right, where settlers intend to stay. Um, and I wanted to also point out that while this was happening, it was around the time of the sort of commemoration of a Nakba, right? It was it commemorated the 73rd um, year of Israeli independence. Um, and on, you know, during the, I've attended several protests, and there were several signs where it mentioned every Israeli city was one Sheikh Jarrah. And I think this is showing us that this this particular example is something that we've seen before, not just seen before, but that it's something that's ongoing that has never, um, that really never um, ended or will never be completed um, until it all becomes a part of Israel. Um, and I also wanted to mention that what started in Sheikh Jarrah expanded to the other territories, which we really didn't see with some of the other um Israeli onslaughts of like the Gaza Strip, for instance, in 2008 or 2011 or in 2014, where we saw a sort of resistance um, in in the territories of Gaza, um, as well as the, the, the attacks that were happening in Al-Aqsa Mosque, which happened at, during the end of Ramadan, which is the holy month for Muslims, um, but also within the 1948 territories in these quote-unquote mixed cities like Haifa, Yaffa, Lid. Um, where we started seeing resistance from Palestinians um, in these areas who are considered second-class citizens of the state, who have always been a demographic uh, threat to the state of Israel, also resisting and also responding. Um, so that was something that was very unique to this particular moment in that there were Palestinians from these different territories, um, right, that, was, that were uh, responding to this Israeli settler colonial project. Thanks for that. Thanks for that. So what we're calling the Nekba uh, is the name for the expulsion of about 750,000 Palestinians from their homes in May 1948, when the state of Israel was officially established. Um, and it means the catastrophe in Arabic. And it's also uh, around the same time that about 12,000 Palestinians died in a series of massacres. Um, in what Israel calls the War of Independence. But in the end, about 80% of Palestinians who lived in what is now Israel were expelled from their homes. And 
over the next decade or so, thousands of Palestinians tried to get back into what became Israel to connect with relatives who were still there or to try to find their property. But between 1949 and 1956, somewhere between 2,000 and 5,000 Palestinians were shot by the IDF trying to cross the border and go back to their homes. So this is um, basically the establishment of the state of Israel um, sort of shows that a settler colonial state requires settlement, which requires expulsion of the inhabitants who live on the land who don't belong to that state. And so that's why when we say that settlement is part of an ongoing project, it's because that project was never complete and it never can be complete because the indigenous inhabitants, so long as the indigenous inhabitants continue um, to live on the lands. Yeah, Uhuru, Uhuru. And, and that's actually the nature of the crisis, right? Because the indigenous inhabitants have, you know, a right, if not a, a duty to resist, you know, the continued settlements uh, on uh, their uh, natural uh, homelands and things like that. According to Al Jazeera, about 11% of Jewish Israeli citizens now live beyond the territory boundaries agreed upon in 1967. This is as many as 750,000 people. Israeli illegal settlements now overrun almost half of the West Bank, reducing it to what can only be described as Swiss cheese. Israeli settlers now occupy about 86% of East Jerusalem. Bayan, what can you tell me about this struggle against the settlements over the last 54 years? So what we've been talking about when we 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 bring up Nekba as the starting point um, is, and I think that's sort of where we have to look at when we're thinking about the settlements, right? So after Israel becomes a state and ethnically cleanses close to 80% of Palestinians, um, as Mason said, denying their right to return, um, many who tried to return to their homes were were, were killed immediately. Um, others returned to find their homes occupied. There was two famous laws, um, including the Absentees Property Law and the Land Acquisition Law, which helped to institutionalize the annexation of, of Palestinian land. So this was sort of the beginning of what we can um, maybe start to see um, settlements. And then it wasn't until um, the Six Day War in 1967 and the illegal occupation of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip and East Jerusalem, um, along with um, the illegal occupation of the Golan Heights from uh, Syria and the Sinai Peninsula from um, from Egypt, um, where we begin to see an increase of these um, settlements in a lot of the areas that are on, uh, you know, that we're talking about today, including Sheikh Jarrah. The new spot now is Silwan. We also can see them in Beit Hanina and Shafat. Um, but again, as stated, under international law, East Jerusalem legally belongs to Palestinian territory, but because Israel is illegally occupying it, where it controls it, implements all of these different um, mechanisms of surveillance, such as um, the wall, the apartheid wall, the checkpoint, um, laws that restrict movements of Palestinians um, where they can't even enter into 1948 territories or Gaza. Um, they attain a different, they have a certain um, or a different um, ID um, called the Green ID that's even different from those who are in East Jerusalem. Um, but it's basically these government-backed Israeli settlement organizations that have been stealing Palestinian homes, right? Homes that Palestinians have been living there for decades. 
um, and are backed up by the IDF or by Israeli soldiers um, to remove Palestinians or to demolish their homes on the spot. So there's a report by the West Bank Jewish Population Stat um, that shows the settler population growing by about 13% since 2017. Um, and so between 2017 and then today, there are about 475,481 Jewish, illegal Jewish settlements. Um, in the West Bank. So sort of the ways that you mentioned the, the, the Swiss cheese, that's, that's basically what it looks like, right? It's, it's sort of Jewish settlements um, that are consuming um, the land within the West Bank. So the land is not even connected at that point geographically, right? So it's difficult to kind of have any control politically, economically, or socially over the West Bank. I wanted to also say that um, these government-backed Israeli settlement organiz organizations um, to increase Jew Jewish settlements oftentimes are supported by the United States. I think there have been um, mechanisms or um, times that the United Nations have, have condemned these settlements, um, but there isn't an actual there isn't actual accountability um, to stop the growth of um, or the increase of these uh, Jewish settlements in the West Bank. Uhuru, Uhuru. I appreciate that analysis so much. Um, Mason, your family is from Northern West Bank. You still have relatives there. Can you tell us a little bit about your family's struggle against Israeli settler colonialism in occupied Palestine? Yeah, my family is from Tul Kedem, which uh, sits pretty close to what was supposed to be the dividing line between the West Bank and Israel. Um, according to the UN partition plan. So um, in 2002, under the guise of security, the state of Israel started to build uh, the wall um, to sort of separate the territory, but 85% of the wall actually runs through the West Bank and not along the green line that's supposed to separate the territories. And it runs as many as 11 miles into the West Bank. So it fractured a lot of the communities who live along that line. And it sort of ran through, for example, um, the shop where my uncle was working. So it eliminated a lot of people's means of uh, work or a lot of people's access to their relatives and it fractured communities. And it also helped with the de facto annexation of further territory by the state of Israel. The um, part of the wall that wasn't finished is the part of the wall in East Jerusalem because it was the site of a lot of very, very heated um, resistance and pushback. And that's where it wasn't able to be completed. But um, aside from that kind of impact, there has also been uh, the more standard police harassment in the middle of the night, especially during um, the intifadas, which that's the Arabic word for uprising. So during periods of um, intifada, then there's usually heightened uh, harassment by the IDF. And um, there's also very restricted movement in the region. It's really hard to get around because there are so many checkpoints. There are land checkpoints and air checkpoints um, in addition to the wall uh, that make any trip take a lot longer than it otherwise would. Thank you. Thank you for that. Bayan, your family is from Hebron in Southern West Bank. Can you tell us about your family struggle? 
So my family is from Hebron. Um, in Arabic, it's um, El Khalil, um, which is in the occupied West Bank. Um, and my family, um, my grandparents were displaced in 1948 as a result of the Nakba. Um, and I have some family who went to Jerusalem. Um, majority of my family did go to Jordan as refugees um, and were eventually or able to eventually claim um, citizen, Jordanian citizenship. Um, the Khalid is uh, considered a very significant city. Um, even for, for, for Jewish folks, it's considered the second largest um, or second holiest city after Jerusalem. Um, and it's also a very holy site as well um, for Muslims. Um, and uh, similarly, it is a city that has experienced a lot of Israelis, um, set, uh, a lot of settler violence. Um, regular night raids um, by the Israeli soldiers who come in in the middle of the night often to, um, you know, inspect um, homes and oftentimes arrest um, Palestinians and incarcerate them. Um, it's also a very, you know, just getting, trying to get to to the Khalid is very dangerous. Uh, you have to go through Wadi Nar. Um, and similar to what Mason said, had there not been the the sort of um, the checkpoints or the alternative routes, um, then you wouldn't have to go through that way. Uhuru, yeah, that sounds like a nightmare. That sounds like a living nightmare. And we know that, you know, colonialism, that's what it does is, um, you know, puts us in these conditions where we can't function, you know, normally. Um, so I thank both of you guys for sharing those experiences with us. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show. Produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guests today are Bayan Abushinene and Mason Alomar. Bayan, so many people have been misled by religious zealots to believe that this conflict is some sort of eternal conflict that dates back to biblical times. It is not. It dates back to British colonialism in the early 20th century. What can you tell us about life in Palestine before British occupation? Yeah, so prior to British occupation, um, Palestine was considered part of the Ottoman Empire, um, as was most of the Middle East. Um, if we think about historic Palestine alone, the population was roughly about 600,000 people, um, where the majority of inhabitants were Sunni Muslim. Um, but uh, Palestinian Christians made up about 10%, while Jewish Palestinians made up about 5%. Um, it's also interesting to note that Palestinians um, were of diverse origins. So there were also Armenians, Bosnians, and even um, Indian Palestinians. And it isn't to like romanticize and say that everyone was coexisting. I'm sure there was, uh, you know, tensions here and there, right? But for the most part, everybody lived on the land as part of the Ottoman Empire. Um, and even during this time, um, you know, going back to Jerusalem, it was considered a strategic and a significant place in the eyes of the Ottoman, um, again, particularly because of its religious significance. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for that. Thanks for that. Because like I said, you know, it, it really allows for us to historicize uh, the moment and, and the anti-colonial struggle in the correct uh, historical uh, context, as opposed to uh, much of the... Uh, colonial propaganda that we've generally been told. So uh, in that sense, what role did the Balfour Declaration and Sykes-Picot Agreement play in producing the colonial crisis in Palestine? 
Yeah, I think the Balfour Declaration and the Sykes-Picot Treaty um, was uh, very critical to um, introducing European influence over the Middle East and in particular in historic um, Palestine. Um, but even before the British presence and ultimate British colonialism in Palestine um, and other places in the Middle East, I think it's also important to understand that during the late 1890s, this is also where we begin to see a formation of Zionist theory and ultimately the Zionist movement. Um, so specifically, maybe around 1897, there was the first Zionist Congress that included over 200 delegates from all over Europe. Um, where Theodore, Theodore Herzl, um, who was considered one of the founders of Zionist thought, um, argued or considered Zionism or the establishment of a Jewish state as the quote-unquote solution for the Jewish question, right? Which he's referring to here as like this rise in anti-Semitism programs um, that existed in Europe at the time and made an argument that it was a Jewish state that was going to emancipate the Jewish people from persecution. And it's interesting to note, too, that he didn't ultimately want Palestine at the time. He was looking into different territories, including Argentina, Kenya, and even Uganda. Um, and in fact, he was actually really more fond over the Ugandan proposal and was shattered when it didn't go through. But ultimately, they decided on Palestine because of its religious significance that they could say or make a claim that it was the chosen land for, uh, for, uh, for the Jewish people. Um, so in fact, while Zionism is sort of, or while this is seen as like this age old um, sort of religious tension, right? Zionism, in fact, was a secular political and a nationalist movement that was that was based on um, in religion, but it was it was ultimately secular. Um, and so it was, you know, you begin to see a sort of rise in Jewish immigration, um, by early Zionists. Um, and then this is also where we begin to see other European powers becoming more involved in the Middle East, again, with the Balfour Declaration and the Sykes-Picot, right? With the Sykes-Picot, it was a secret treaty between the UK and France to kind of expand their influence and control over the Ottoman Empire by basically going through and drawing lines and splitting up the Middle East um, and implementing colonial rule. Right, so they basically created or constructed these borders that did not exist before. So the UK at this point had colonized Palestine, um, Jordan, and southern Iraq, and the France colonized northern northern Iraq, um, southeastern Turkey, Syria, and Lebanon. Um, the Balfour Declaration, where in Arabic it's called Wa'ad Balfour, which is really important, which means promised by Balfour. Um, basically declared openly the British's government, the British government's unwavering support for a Jewish homeland in Palestine. Um, so this is also kind of a way for, you can see this as a support for the Zionist movement um, and an attempt to, to, to um, how do I say this, um, to encourage Jewish immigration out of Europe. Right. So you could see this as a sort of a rise to anti-Semitism or a, a, a form of it, um, as well as a support for the Zionist movement. Um, so the British enters Jerusalem, occupies Palestine in 1917, um, or enters Jerusalem in 1917 and becomes an, a mandate in 1922. 
And this is where we begin to see the British aiding in the immigration of Jew European Jews to Palestine. So between 1922 and 1935, the Jewish population rose from 9% to nearly 27% of the total population. And this has long lasting effects even until today. So it wasn't that the British is openly supportive of Zionism and the Israeli state, um, but even many of the institutions that were built during the time of the British mandate um, are still in place today. And one example I can think of is um, administrative detention, right? Or sort of the arrest and detaining of Palestinian prisoners um, without charge um, or uh, without claim, and they can hold them indefinitely. Um, so, and then going back again, real quick to, to, to Jerusalem, the, the Balfour Declaration actually contradiction or contradicted Sykes-Picot because it was promised by the British that Palestine would remain under international administration. Um, um, but that obviously did not happen. What role has international bodies such as the UN played in this colonial crisis? Well, the United Nations partition plan uh, sort of divided the territory um, in response to Palestinians rejecting um, Balfour and saying that it goes against their right to self-determination. The United Nations sort of stepped in as this supposedly neutral outside body and came up with the partition plan that gave um, what includes now the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and Gaza to Palestinians and a lot of the rest of the territory to the state of Israel, um, which is a very imbalanced division, especially based on the demographics of the state at the time. That was followed by uh, what Israel calls the War of Independence and the official establishment of the state of Israel. But by 1967, Israel had claimed or occupied even those territories that supposedly belonged to Palestine, according to the partition plan. In 1956, uh, Gamal Abdel who had participated in the Egyptian Revolution of 1952 to end the British occupation, decided to nationalize the Suez Canal in Egypt, which until then the British and French had jointly controlled. So in response, Israel attacked Egypt with the help of British and French troops, but Egypt retained control over the canal. But then in 1967, Israel attacked Egypt's airbase um, and destroyed the Egyptian Air Force while it was still on the ground, um, which launched the 1967 war. And as with any kind of colonial context, obviously there are a lot of versions of why that war started, but um, on the eve of the 1967 attack, Israeli minister Yigal Allen wrote, in a new war, we must avoid the historic mistake of the War of Independence in 1948 and must not cease fighting until we achieve total victory, the territorial fulfillment of the land of Israel. So according to international law, uh, the occupation of the occupied territories, the West Bank and Gaza, is illegal. Um, and a lot of the settlement activity is illegal. And a lot of Israel's war activities have been condemned by international law as war crimes. So in that sense, there's a little bit of recognition on the part of the UN that these activities should not be happening, but there's no actual 
way of stopping it, or I guess there's no actual attempt to stop it. And um, the United States, especially in recent decades, has played a really big role in that by blocking any action or blocking any um, resolution or blocking the kind of external pressure that would be needed to intervene. Oh, yeah. Thanks for that. Thanks for that. Thanks for that necessary uh, historical background, especially you elevating the uh, colonial contradictions, the political economic contradictions, uh, which we know is absolutely correct. It is very clear that the French and the British uh, wanted to dominate the area, but they could only dominate the area with the uh, inclusion of European settlers. which is uh, what began uh, in the 1910s and 1920s and uh, continues to today. So the colonization of Palestine, as well as other Arab lands in the late 19th century and early 20th century, overlaps with the period in which Africa was also carved up for colonial spoils during a period commonly known as the Scramble for Africa. Bayan. What similarities have you recognized in the colonization of Africa and the colonization of the, quote, Middle East, unquote? Why is it important for us to recognize these periods as part of the same colonial project? I mean, I think I mean, the, I think the obvious one that I, I can really think of is um, even just the way that these sort of European powers are arbitrarily drawing these lines and constructing these borders that really don't have they don't necessarily make any logical sense um there's no regard for um the certain ethnic group what language people speak what religion um so i think in the ways that you know european powers were carving up um africa i think you know sykes picot did the same thing and i think we could see that in places like lebanon um and iraq for example um, that even just the drawing of these borders have caused a lot of internal um, sort of divisions or tensions um, between the different ethnic and religious groups. Um, but I think this is, um, I think it's important for us to recognize these periods as part of the same or similar colonial project because it's essentially about power, right? It's about these sort of um, European powers like British and the French kind of constructing um, a racial and colonial hierarchy for the world. Um in which these uh, these European countries are extracting resources and labor from um, the native populations to to essentially um, benefit or to, to profit off of them uh, to profit for them, um, where we see a relationship in which European powers are becoming richer and richer at the expense of the country that it's colonizing, um, and then when things get difficult or things go bad or there's a lot of tension, right, which is where we started to see within the the end of the British mandate. Um, the sort of increased tension began to see uh, uh, more uprisings from the Arabs against British administration and against Jewish settlers. Um, they just back out. Um, but I think these, again, these dynamics kind of create a relationship in which um, the Western powers believe that they're, you know, they're entitled to these resources until they get what they need. Um, and we see this in, in, in Africa, in the Middle East, and also in Asia. Uh, what do you think, Mason? Yeah, I think it's really important to em- emphasize that it is about retaining control over the regions and retaining control over the region's resources. There's this um, clip of Joe Biden that has been circulating recently 
giving a speech in, I think, 1986, where he says, it's about time we stop apologizing for our support for Israel. There's no apology to be made. It's the best $3 billion investment we make. If there weren't an Israel, the United States of America would have to invent an Israel to protect her interests in the region. I think it's important because it helps us see that what we might think of as just natural, or I guess not we, but what some people might think of as just natural distributions of resources in the world, like these countries are rich and these countries aren't, um, are not natural or inevitable. And they're also relatively recent. Yeah, thanks for that. Now, Bayan, just another follow-up. A lot of your research looks at contemporary overlappings of the colonial domination of African people around the world and uh, Arab people around the world, but particularly uh, African and Arab people in uh, occupied Palestine. Can you explain some of that research and how you think it relates to this longer history? Yeah, so part of my um, part of my research really looks at the ways that um, Israel as a Jewish state um, and thinking about Zionism is not simply predicated on the dispossession of Palestinian people, but also on um, the sort of logics of 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 the West, including anti-Semitism and anti-blackness. We can see the ways that, um, for instance, the Israeli state was first. Um, was first created or declared in 1948, there was this masses of policy to, to bring um, uh, Jewish people to settle in Israel, right? So you get the law of return in 1950 that basically claims or um, states that anybody who is considered Jewish, um, who can claim Judaism is able to immigrate and settle and claim citizenship to, to the state. Um, but at the time we see that um, and there's a lot of, um, you know, uh, discourses around this and, and, and um, things in the archives where we can see that Ethiopians were dismissed as Jewish people. And a lot of the logics around it was of basically like claiming that their blood is not Jewish, that they're not considered authentic Jews. Right. And so my my work um, also looks at the ways that um, the bringing of Ethiopian Jews in the 1970s or 1980s kind of came out of a moment in which Israel was facing a lot of negative attention by the international media, especially after the Six Day War in 1967 and the kind of illegal occupation of these different territories. Um, and this is where we start to see many African countries, um, you know, cutting ties with Israel. So there was a lot of negative press of Israel being aligned with Western powers over like other, you know, anti-colonial movements, which it supposedly was according to Zionism. After the United Nations General Assembly Resolution 3379, which claimed that Israel is racism, you know, Israel kind of, a couple years later, we begin to see this change of policy where Israeli rabbis claimed um, or passed something that stated that um, Ethiopian Jews are now considered or are now allowed to um, immigrate into the state and become citizens of the state, which um, began several policies like, um, you know, uh, Operation Solomon and Operation Moses and Operation Joshua to bring or, as you know, Israelis have claimed to save um, Ethiopians um, and bringing them over to be part of the state. Point five of the African People's Socialist Party's 14-point platform calls for internationalist and anti-colonial solidarity 
between African people and the toiling masses of the world, including the people of the Middle East. It reads, We want the right to international, political, and economic association with Africans and all other peoples anywhere on the face of the earth. We believe that all Black people are African people and are part of a single national entity. We believe that the genuine freedom of African people everywhere is irreversibly linked to the creation of an independent, united, and socialist Africa. We believe the struggle of African people within the U.S. represents the U.S. front of the worldwide movement of African people for African liberation, political independence, and socialist democracy. We believe the worldwide struggle for African liberation is in unity with the struggles being waged by the majority of the peoples of the world to end the oppression of nations by nations and to create a new world within which the toiling masses will end the system of workers and bosses and slaves and masters and will own and benefit from the means and products of our labor and will have political authority over our own lives. We believe the natural and objective friends of our struggle for African liberation, independence, and socialist democracy are the toiling masses of the world, the people of the Middle East, the Asian and Latin American peasants and workers, the democratic forces throughout Eastern and Western Europe and the U.S., and the truly socialist states of the world, and that we must therefore have the absolute right to free political and economic international association. Mason. Why is internationalist solidarity important for Palestinian liberation? I think Angela Davis makes a really good case for this and freedom is a constant struggle. And one of the things that she brings up is the company G4S, which is the third largest private corporation in the world after Walmart and Foxconn. And it's also the largest private employer on the continent of Africa. And it also employs people who are incarcerated in other parts of the world Um, But it's a security company that creates a lot of the surveillance technologies and a lot of the technologies of policing and a lot of the technologies that have changed the way that imprisonment looks and a lot of technology that's used by the state of Israel. Um, And it's directly responsible for a lot of the very tangible connections um, between political repression in these various places, imprisonment in South Africa, um, some even surveillance technologies in schools in the United States, uh, the wall along the U.S.-Mexico border. So I think when we think about how a lot of these connections are material, then we can understand how addressing the problems can sort of link the struggles. Uhuru, thank you, thank you. Bayam, what do you think? Yes, I think that... Israel or the creation of Israel did not exist or did not, was not created on its own, but relied on other countries, um, especially the United States, especially European powers, right? Financially, just having that kind of support. So power operating on this scale requires a type of solidarity that extends beyond borders, that extends beyond simply um you know, a relationship between Israel and, and, and Palestine. Um, and I think also the ways, the sort of policies, the Israeli policies against uh, Palestinians and by extension, um, other racialized and colonized groups in Israel um, have been made um, in connection to or in related to um, 
South Africa, which um, the sort of South African apartheid could not have ended um, without the attention of the international uh, media, uh, without international solidarity. So I think within Palestine, where you're seeing, um, you know, two different ethnic groups essentially being treated differently under Israeli law, I think this requires a type of international solidarity. Oh, yeah. Thanks for that. Now, in your research and activism, what are some examples of African Arab solidarity that you find important to highlight, either a Bayan or a Mason? So I think one thing that's interesting is how conversations about abolition of the police and imprisonment um, have sort of extended to that also goes for the military and U.S. military activity and U.S. support for military activity all over the world. Um, And I think in light of that, um, it's also important to understand that this kind of solidarity is just even though the connections might seem really inevitable, um, it's also important to understand how it's working uh, from the top. So Israel has invested a lot of money, for example, especially in response to accusations of apartheid in campus activity and especially in campus activity in places that are liberal or in campus activity Um, at historically black colleges and universities and has paid for people at historically black colleges and universities to take trips to Israel and to speak at APAC conferences. And uh, that I think their idea is that this will help to combat the perception that Israel could be racist or that what's happening in Israel is apartheid. Um, And I think in light of that, it's really interesting to see how Uh, So after this most recent assault on Gaza ended, Israel announced that it would be launching what it's calling Operation Law and Order in um, the West Bank to arrest 500 more people over the next 48 hours. Um, It has already arrested nearly 1,500 in the last two weeks. But I think it's really interesting that they're going with that language and they're choosing to sort of lean into the language of policing um, when, you know, that's not necessarily historically the route that they have taken. Oh, yeah. Thanks for that. Thanks for that. Now, uh, one thing that I think is uh, really important, we've elevated the colonial question. And I do think that ways through which the Israeli state have uh, tried to uh, usurp questions of apartheid and racism by basically finding ways to incorporate uh, African people into uh, the Israeli state uh, really sort of uh, underscores the importance of our even much larger colonial question that we are talking about here uh, and things like that. Uh, So I really want to salute you all and thank you all for uh, raising those uh, colonial contradictions as a part of our conversation. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guests today are Bayan Abusinene and Mason Alomar. Mason, you and Bayan in different ways, research the overlaps of colonialism and medicine amongst African, Palestinian, and other oppressed communities internationally. This show takes its name 
from an African self-determined campaign to defend the African community against COVID-19, which Chairman Omalia Shetela has termed the colonial virus. How has the COVID-19 pandemic impacted the Palestinian people in occupied Palestine? So the pandemic there has had a few really, really bad waves. Um, My aunt's husband actually died of COVID-19 a few months back. It has hit the Palestinian people really hard because their health infrastructure is already overburdened for a lot of other reasons, including, for example, the health infrastructure in Gaza was really, really overburdened with the latest assaults on the region which included attacks on roads leading up to hospitals and included an attack on the biggest medical center there and attacks that uh, killed the leading neurosurgeon in the region. And these attacks have really weakened um, already uh, full hospitals that were dealing with COVID-19 and also forced people into really confined spaces that could act as super spreaders and make the pandemic worse. Um, which is already a problem because Israel got a lot of attention for being the first to vaccinate the majority of its citizens. And about 60% of its population is now fully vaccinated against COVID-19, whereas only about 2% of the Palestinian population is vaccinated against COVID-19. And there were attempts by the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank to send a few of their already very scarce vaccines to Gaza, which were blocked by Israel before the assaults even took place. So because they're not getting the necessary resources to prevent the pandemic and because their health centers are already overburdened, it's really, really hard to treat. Also, a a testing, a COVID-19 testing facility was bombed in Gaza recently. So it's really hard to even trace uh, how the virus is spreading, let alone treat it or contain it, or um, acquire the necessary resources to help prevent it. And one of the things that the restrictions on movement and the building of the wall in the West Bank has done is that it has separated a lot of the Palestinians in the West Bank from the main hospitals that are mostly in East Jerusalem. And so it requires Palestinians to get permits to go to the hospital And the permit approval process is controlled by the state of Israel, and it can take a very long time and people can, people often die waiting for approval. Uhuru, Uhuru, thank you so much for that. Um, Bayan, African and Arab women and families have suffered dearly in Israeli colonialism, making up as many as one third of the people murdered by Israeli forces. Please tell us what has been the impact of Israeli settler colonialism on African and Arab reproductive politics in occupied Palestine? So the question of reproduction dominates any discourse or um, around demographics. And for a country that is concerned with demographics and increasing its Jewish majority to um, basically maintain itself as a Jewish state, Israel is obviously incredibly um, uh, concerned with reproduction. Um, It leads the world in, um, you know, reproductive technologies. It's one of the only countries in the world where uh, assisted reproductive technologies are state subsidized for citizens. Um, It leads the world in fetal diagnostics. Um, It has very liberal um, abortion policies um, for women um, who want to receive an abortion if um, their 
um, if their child or their fe the fetus has a, a small percentage of having an intellectual mental disability. Um, so based and 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 also with that, right, trying to increase the the, the Jewish population, there's also uh, tactics and strategies to eliminate undesirable populations. So um, targeting Palestinian reproductive bodies is, is, is becomes structural to Israeli settler colonial projects, um, uh, racialized logic of elimination, right, or sort of the erasure of Palestinian um, people. Um, and there's so many different examples that we can see this. Um, between 2000 and 2006, more than 68 pregnant Palestinian women um, died at the checkpoints, um, be, trying to get to a hospital to get birth, right? And oftentimes, you know, due to the weight of these checkpoints, due to the harassment um, by Israeli settler, uh, the Israeli soldiers, um, it's difficult to pass through. Um, even a lot of records from the Nekbe um, show vivid records that um, Palestinian pregnant women were targeted. There were a few instances um, in which Palestinian women's bodies were, were, were ripped and fetuses were pulled out of their wombs, um, a sort of symbolism that Palestinian babies are not wanted. Um, I remember in 2014, during the onslaught against the Gaza Strip, I believe it was 2014 or 2008, Operation Cast Lead. Um, but there were shirts that were worn by the IDF. One of them shows like a Palestinian, a pregnant Palestinian woman in in, in crosshairs, and at the top it says "One shot, two kills." Um, so this type of rhetoric, even just the most recent onslaught against the Gaza Strip, I believe it was about three or four Palestinian pregnant women uh, were killed. Right. So trying to think about. Um, you know, targeting uh, Palestinian reproduction as a colonial strategy to build the state. And also, I want to mention that um, this type of reproductive violence extends towards um, undesirable Jewish populations. So there's a lot of control over Mizrahi um, children um, and also Ethiopian Jewish women, where many Ethiopian Jewish women during the 1980s and 1990s um, who went to um, who were obviously brought to, you know, fulfill Israel's colonial mission, um, were uh, temporarily sterilized with uh, Depo-Provera. They were forced to take inoculations of Depo-Provera before entering um, Israel. And, um, you know, what this also really shows is that, you know, Israel doesn't just desire to be this Jewish majority state or this Jewish state, right? But a particular Jewish state um, and, and essentially a white nation. Now, to end today, Mason and Bayan, what can our listeners do to support the struggle for Palestinian liberation? There's many different things. Um, abolition. I think supporting the abolition movement, similar to what Mason was talking about, that um, you know, support abolitions, global movement towards abolition. I think holding the United States um, accountable, the U.S. gives about $3.8 billion a year um, to fund Israel um, financially. Um, so holding our, our, our local officials accountable for that. Um, and uh, education, I think, is really important, too. I think something that was really important that came out of what was going on in Sheikh Jarrah where they kept saying, we don't want donations. We don't want donations. We need you to let everybody know what's going on. So this is why social media became so big. So 
you know, even though there was this ceasefire um, between Israel and Hamas, um, that, um, you know, not to not to stop talking about Palestine, um, to continue the momentum, to continue the movement, um, to continue educating people, I think is, is important. Oh, Mason? So I think one of the reasons why it's important to look at uh, things like the COVID-19 pandemic and access to healthcare and access to other resources is because it helps us to see that it's not just the direct murders that are manifestations of settler colonialism, but there are all these other insidious ways that it manifests. And I think that one of the things that it's important to remember about colonial states is that they don't just voluntarily end. They uh, need external pressure. So, and, and that goes for all, all colonial states, including the one where we live. So I think that that kind of pressure um, is important. And I do think this is another thing that I think has happened recently in response to a lot of the conversations about abolition and about uh, policing in the U.S., and Black Lives Matter is that it has sort of given um, some people in the U.S. language to sort of make some of what's happening in that region legible um, and to make the connections a little bit more obvious. And a lot of the uh, pushback against policing and militarism that has come out of those movements has reverberated in, in other ways. Um, so I, I think it's important to, to keep with that pushback and to fight for abolition here too. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guests today were Bayan Abusinene and Mason Alomar. So we say down with the This has been the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU Black Power Radio at 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. WBPU is a project of the African People's Education and Defense Fund, the baddest nonprofit on the planet, whose mission is to defend the human and civil rights of the African community and address the grave disparities faced by African people in education, healthcare, and economic development. For more information on the African People's Education and Defense Fund, visit apedf.org. Episodes of the People's War Radio Show are available on the Black Power Talks podcast. For updates and resources to fight the coronavirus or to volunteer with Project Black Onk, visit developmentforafrica.org. Thank you for listening. Colonial virus, mass incarceration, that's colonial virus.